chapter 5. We're kind of in between series this morning. Um, if you remember the last time um, I preached, Matt Deputy preached last week, but two weeks ago um, I finished up our study of Ecclesiastes. And one of the verses in that last section we looked at, and then a discussion that we had, I had with several people following um, the service, led to, to this morning's message. Um, what I'm planning on doing next, between now and Advent, is a series on the letters to the churches in Revelation. Um, but if you know those letters, there's seven letters, eight weeks I am preaching. Um, there's two weeks other people are preaching. So eight weeks for seven churches, so I thought I've got one Sunday extra. So I'm going to build off our conversation and build off where we ended Ecclesiastes, which if you remember the last verse of Ecclesiastes was a reminder of judgment. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. The discussion we had after church is what does this verse mean for Christians? What does it mean for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, who the Bible says our, our sins are blotted out, which means completely erased, they're gone, there's no remnants of them. Psalm 103, I think it is, says that our sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. So what does this verse mean for us? What does the day of judgment mean for us? And that leads us uh, to 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 10. Only one verse this morning. But I had trouble keeping it to the normal length. So there's more than enough for us to choose, or enough for us to chew on with just one verse. Verses we could go to. But follow along as we read this verse. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. It's only one verse. Let's read it again. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body. Whether good or evil. Pray with me as we ask for the Lord's help before we continue. God, we do come and ask that your spirit would take your word and write it on our hearts. Father, the words that are contained in this um, can lead us to fear, can lead us to confusion, can lead us to questions. So we ask that you would answer our questions through your word. Provide what we need, Father, and may these words cause us to live as your people in light of the day that is coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, most of you probably know this, perhaps all of you have used the different parts of this as an illustration before, but before I got married... Um, I took a cross-country bicycle trip, 2008, started in Portland, Maine in July, and for three months we rode west and eventually arrived in Portland, Oregon. Uh, two of those friends that went with me were Ronnie's kids, Bruce and Evie, and the third was a friend of Bruce's, her name was Carla. And while we spent many days and months preparing for this trip, um, mapping it out, uh, buying our gear, making all of our plans, we did not spend as much time as we probably should training for the trip, uh, which made for the first few weeks, especially for me. I was the only one who lived in Delaware at that time, and, and most of the training took place in Delaware. In the first few weeks of that trip, uh, we met the hills of New England and the Appalachian Mountains, which my mother-in-law reminds me are hills. They're not mountains. They're beautiful hills. Um, and in case you haven't noticed, there's not too many of those in, in Delaware. 
And those first few weeks, I spent most of my time in the back of the pack. And a lot of my time way back in the pack. Usually it was me and Evie in the back. Carla was much more in shape than us. And I'm convinced Bruce, and you probably attested this, Bruce was not going to let a girl outride him. So he just wore himself out keeping up with Carla. And usually me and Evie were just worn out somewhere long behind them. We'd catch up at a break and they were ready to keep going. And we said, no, hold on a second. But there was one day where I led the pack. One day I was in the back, but I was in the front. And I was the one calling for them to pick up the pace a little so we could get to our destination a little sooner. And it wasn't an easy day. It was, in fact, one of the hardest days we had in the early part of our trip. Uh, The climb we ended with that day was one of the steepest climbs we had in the entire trip. Some asked me, well, how did you ride the Rockies? And I said, well, the Rockies are easy compared to the east. In the Rockies, it's just a 5% grade for 20 miles. In the east, the, the grade is in the teens, and it's constantly up and down. And this day ended with one of the steepest inclines of the whole trip. But yet I was the first one to the top. I remember turning around and seeing the others, and to my amazement, seeing even Carla uh, pushing their bike up the last 100 yards of the climb. Now, I'd done that before, but on this climb, I pedaled the entire way up. That's because at the top of that hill was our destination for the day. And that destination was a house, a blue two-story house on Bissell Avenue in Oil City, Pennsylvania. And inside that house was waiting for me, my then fiancé and now wife. And knowing what awaited me, or rather knowing who awaited me at the top of that climb, that hill, it made for an easier climb. Despite the grade, I I had some motivation that drove me. Well, why do I start with that story on a sermon about Judgment Day? Because what I think Paul is giving us in our verse this morning is his motivation. He's telling us what is driving him as a Christian. Uh, You notice our verse begins uh, with the word for, which should tell us that we need to look around a little bit because it means we're in the middle of an argument that Paul is making. And the argument that he is making, the the proof that he is giving us in verse 10, is what fuels him as a Christian. Notice what he says in verse 9. He says, so whether we are at home or away, which means whether we are home with the Lord, we're dead, or we're away from the Lord, we're alive. Whether we are dead or alive, we make it our aim to please him. Now in response to that, we might ask the question, well, why, Paul? Why do you make this your aim? Why is your aim in life to please God? And Paul assumes that question, so he gives us the answer. For, here's why, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Here, Paul says, is why I aim to live my life pleasing God, and why you should too. Notice the we in verse 9. We make it our aim. He's calling the Corinthian church to join him in this. He's calling us to join him in this. He says, in case you need it, here's some motivation. And we need motivation. Because in our flesh, in our natural tendency, our aim is to please ourselves. Our aim is going to be to live for the glory of me. So he says, here's some motivation. Here's what is at the top of the hill of your life. You will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You know, often when we think of 
what comes after this life, when we think of heaven and things of eternity, we often are, we come with a lot of questions and Paul assumes that. So he gives us three answers to questions we might have as we think about the day of judgment, particularly for Christians. He's writing this to Corinth. He's writing this to Christians. This is the, the we as Christians. So he provides three answers in verse 10. And, and the first question that we might come and that we find an answer for is this. Will I be at the judgment? That's kind of a discussion we had last week or two weeks ago. Will I be at the judgment seat? Well, Paul gives us a quick answer. He says, well, yes, because everyone's going to be there. We must all appear before the judgment seat. You know how I love to study Greek words. And there's a, there's a funny thing about this Greek word, all. And that is that it actually means all. All, any, total, whole, every kind of. Paul says we will all be there. Saw a sermon, read through a sermon in my studies from Alan Carr, and he gives these four U's, which are your four subpoints. The first thing he says about this judgment is that it is a it is a universal judgment. It is a universal judgment. Every one of us. Later on, he says, each one, later on in verse 10, it's not up there, but each one implying that we will be there as individuals. Uh, we won't be there as a church group. You, you won't be able to bring your com- community group there for moral support. You, you won't be able to have your best friend or even your spouse there. You won't be able to bring a lawyer to represent you and make your appeal. Romans 14, this got out of order, but Romans 14, 10 says, so then each of us, individual, each of us, will give an account for himself or of himself, of herself, to God. You will be there and you will be alone before the judgment seat. In Revelation, we're told that both the, the great and the small are brought before the judgment seat. You know, when we went to Disney World many years ago, we purchased fast passes. I don't know if you can still get fast passes or not, but they were great because they allowed us to skip to the front of the line and go straight to the ride. Paul says there's no fast passes in heaven. No one will skip the judgment seat. You might have gotten out of certain things here on earth because of your status, because of your position, but not on judgment day. Great and small. Matthew 25 says that all the nations will be brought before him on judgment day. It's where Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. And now there's a debate about these three passages you see on the screen, the the passage from 2 Corinthians, the passage in Revelation, the great white throne judgment, and then the, the judgment be separating the sheep and the goats. Some see these as three different judgments. And, and I'm not going to get into that uh, debate this morning. But whether they're three or whether they're one, what is made abundantly clear when we see all of them is that everyone, at some point, will come before the judgment seat. It's universal. The, the next thing we see is that it is... It is unavoidable. It is unavoidable. Everyone must appear, Paul says. It's not optional. Life is not like an elective that you can take in college where you can take all the classes and learn all the material but skip the test. Everyone must come before the judge. That word must again means must. To be unavoidably determined by prior circumstances. And the prior circumstances that determine that we must appear before the judgment seat is that we're alive. Because we're told in Hebrews that just as it appointed for man to die once, after that comes 
judgment. You know, I don't know if you've noticed this, but the death rate for human beings, it's 100%. We're all going to die. I mentioned this at prayer meeting on Wednesday, but Alexander the Great's father, King Philip II, had a servant whose entire job description was to stand before the king and tell him, King Philip, you're going to die. King Philip, you're going to die. And he was right, but he should have added on to that, and after that comes judgment. King Philip, you're going to die, and after that comes judgment. 100% of us will die, and 100% of us will come before the judgment seat of Christ. There's one other thing we should notice about our appearance before the judgment seat that we should, that, that sticks out in these verses, though it's a little more hidden than the others, and that is, it will be an undeniable judgment. And this comes from that word, appear. Now that word could simply mean that we show up, that we will be there. But it could also mean that we will be apparent when we are there. The Amplified Translation puts it like this. For we must all appear and be revealed as we are before the judgment seat of Christ. The the Living Bible says, For we must all stand before Christ to be judged and have our lives laid bare. A translator by the name of Moffat says it like this. "For For we have all to appear without disguise. We talk about hypocrites in this world. They put on a mask. The mask, the disguises are going to be removed as we stand before the tribunal of Christ. Our lives will be laid bare. One commentator compared it to going to a doctor. You've gone to the doctor before and you know you you start out in the room in, in the the little room that you're in and the nurse comes in and they, they ask you to they ask you questions about how you're feeling. What what's your judgment on your health? But then what happens? She or he leaves, and as they leave, they say, well, take off your clothes, and the doctor's going to come in, and he will give you his judgment. And, and sometimes the exam goes even deeper, and an x-ray is called. And what lies beneath the surface is exposed. Nothing can be hidden. That's what the Bible says about this day of judgment. Hebrews 4.13 says, No creature is hidden from his sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. Jesus said, On that day, nothing will be covered up, or nothing is covered up that will not be revealed, or hidden that will not be known. You can cover up and you can hide a lot of things in this world. You you, you can fool a lot of people a lot of the time, but on that day, no one will be fooled, including yourself. Who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? All will appear. It's it's universal. Who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? All must appear. It's unavoidable. Who will appear before the judgment seat of Christ? All of us will be laid bare before the judgment seat. It is undeniable. Which leads to the fourth you from Alan Carr, which is that for many, for many, that judgment will be unthinkable. Verses that should strike a note of holy and good fear in our lives is to read what Jesus says in Matthew 7, 22. Where he says, on that day, many will say to me, this, that day is this day of judgment. People come before him to give an account for themselves and they say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then he says, I will declare to them. 
I never knew you. But we know you, but I don't know you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. The second question, the first question we have is, who will be at the judgment seat? We all will be at the judgment seat of Christ. The next question we might have, if, if we're going to be there, well, who else is going to be there? Who's the judge? Who's the judge? I, I like to read a lot of John Grisham, John, John Grisham novels, and, and many of those novels take place in a courtroom and surround a, a trial. And one of the first questions that's always asked when the case is about to go to trial is, who's the judge? Who, who's the judge? Do we have a past history with this judge? Is he or she a judge who judges fairly and justly, or are they biased? Do we need to try to move it to another jurisdiction? When we think of judgment and we think of us being brought to a judgment seat, what's important for us to know is who is on that seat? Who's the judge? And Paul gives us this answer straightforwardly as well. The judgment seat that we are brought before is the the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus will be the judge. Jesus himself said in the Gospels many times referred to himself. We've seen a couple already, but here he says very clearly, the Father has given authority to execute judgment to me, to his Son, because he is the Son of Man. It's the Father's judgment. They're not in disagreement here, but the Father has given the judgment to the Son. He is the one seated on the seat. This should lead us to two things. To see Jesus on the seat for Christians, it should lead us To a great comfort. To a great comfort. To see that the one on the judgment seat is our Savior. The very term judgment seat, in fact, is a great comfort. We might read that and we think, well, that's terrifying. But it's comforting because it reminds us of another judgment seat. The word that is used here in the Greek is the word bima. Perhaps you've heard that term used before, the, the bima seat judgment. But the word at the time was actually a common word in in the Greek language. Common especially in Corinth. Because Corinth was a city where athletic competitions were held. And at the games of these competitions, there was a bema seat. A raised platform where the judges would sit and they would oversee the competitions. And at the end of them, they would give out trophies and rewards to the winners. But it was also a judicial term. a, a, A term used in the courts of law. Where the judge would sit to give his verdict on a trial. And we find that this word bima used two different occasions in the Bible in this regard. Uh, one is in Acts where Paul is brought before the bima seat of Galileo and tried there. But the other one is more important to us. And that is found in the Gospels. Where Jesus in his earthly ministry, at the end of his earthly ministry, is brought before the bima seat of Pilate. So Pilate heard those words, he brought Jesus out, sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic as Gabbatha. Same word, bima, seat, is used here. And we just studied, and leading up to Easter, we studied the trial and passion of Jesus. And we're familiar with this scene, but don't forget what this scene would have looked like. Don't forget how Jesus would have looked. Jesus, worn down from a sleepless night, Remember the kangaroo trials that went through the night and drug before Pilate after two nights probably of no sleep. Jesus already beaten and bruised from the whips and the rods of the Romans. 
Betrayed by Jesus, deserted by his disciples, spit upon by the soldiers who whipped him, barely able to stand, barely able to see, his head dripping with the blood from the crown of thorns that had been thrust upon him, his body clothed in mockery with a purple robe. And here he stands before the bema seat of Pilate, an innocent man, the only innocent man that ever lived. But what does he hear at this judgment? What is Pilate's verdict that he gives from his throne? Guilty. Now you can hardly imagine a more different scene from that one than the one that Paul points us to in 2 Corinthians. The, the heavenly beam seat of Jesus where Jesus sits on the throne and he is the judge. Adorned not with a crown of thorns but with a crown of power and authority. Not dressed in robes of mockery but dressed in royal robes. And before him... All must come. Pilate must come. The crowd who mocked him must come. The soldiers who killed him must come. The disciples who denied him must come. And you and I, whose sins he bore on the cross, must come. Everyone, Paul says in Philippians 2, must come and must bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he is the judge. But here's the remarkable thing about this judgment seat, this Bema seat. At Pilate's seat, the, at Pilate's Bema seat, the innocent was declared guilty, but at Jesus' Bema seat, many of the guilty are declared innocent. Because in our place at that Bema seat, condemned he stood. Paul writes about this and marvels about this just a few Verses later, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Who is this him? This him is the same him of verse 10. The one who is seated on the judgment seat. He lowered himself. He humbled himself. He was made sin and died on a cross for our sins. So that at the judgment seat of Christ, we might be declared righteous. For those who are in Christ, those who have trusted in Him as our Savior, as we approach the Bema seat, we find that the one who is seated on it is not only our judge, but our Savior, our Redeemer, our our substitute, the one who stepped off of that seat and became and took our place. So when we approach that seat and He sees our name written in the Lamb's book of life, His verdict is not guilty. Innocent. Because our guilt has already been paid. The judgment has been executed on Him. Jesus says again in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes Him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Notice the tense of the verbs. He has eternal life. If you believe in Jesus, you have already eternal life. You're not waiting for it on the other side of judgment. You're not wondering what the verdict will be. You already have eternal life. The judgment has been made. The verdict has been decided. Paul says the answer is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a great comfort it is to see the one who is seated on the throne. But there's another thing that we should feel as we see this one who is seated on the judgment seat. And that is... A great warning. A great warning. Seeing that Jesus 
The one who humbled himself to the point of death. Even death on a cross, Paul says. So that all who believed in him would be saved, John 3.16, we know. To see that he is the one on the throne is a warning. And it's a warning to not neglect this great salvation. And turn in your Bibles to Hebrew 10. I'll put a few verses on the screen. That's good. I don't get you to do this enough. But you should turn in your Bibles at times, especially for longer passage. And turn to Hebrews 10, 26. Here we hear the warning. Where we're told that if we go on sinning, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment. Throughout the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been elevating Jesus above the law, Jesus above this. And now he says, because of that, if you neglect Jesus, compared to what happens when you neglect the law, it's going to be much worse. Do you think, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This is a warning in particular to us and those who sit in any church, those who live in a place where the gospel is proclaimed freely, abundantly, we rejoice in that, but it comes with a responsibility. If you have heard the gospel, if you have heard the good news, the, the great news of what God has done through Jesus to forgive us of our sins and to reconcile us to Himself, to restore our relationship with Him that was destroyed... And then turn on that news and, and ignore that news and decide, hey, I like my sin better. The warning is that one day you will stand before that one that you ignored. You will stand before the one that you chose your sin over. The one who died for your sins that you treated as though you could not care less. You will stand before Him. Now notice what he says in verse 26. It's not... That we, we sin. He's not expecting us to be perfect. We know we will struggle with sin. We will battle with sin. And we will even lose some battles to sin. And as long as we are on this earthly journey. But the warning is to those who continually and deliberately choose sin over Jesus. And that, that, that choosing and that continually and deliberately, it, it starts with just a, a little sin here and a little sin here. And that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. For some reason, his name is forgetting me, or I can't think of his name. Is it Flavels who says, be killing sin, or sin will be That's the warning from this verse. You allow a little bit of sin to sit there and fester and grow, it will kill you. Every day, every moment, every second, be waging a war on sin. 
seeing Jesus on the throne is a great warning to us. Do not come covered in the sins that he died for. William Grinnell in the book, The Christian in Complete, Complete Armor, writes this. And it's old, so the language is old, but it kind of catches you because of that. Say not that thou hast royal blood in, in thy veins. Say not that thou art born of God, if thou canst not prove thy pedigree by daring to be holy. Don't go around boasting that you have the blood of Jesus in your veins. That you are born of God. If you cannot show by your pedigree, if you do not show by your life, that you are daring to be holy. This leads us to the answer to the third question that we might have when it comes to judgment. To judgment day. And that is why. Why will we be there? And as we read the passage, the question might be, well, why will our works be judged? Why will what we have done be judged? Paul says that at the judgment seat, each one of us will receive what is due for what we have done in our body, whether good or evil. And we, we know salvation is by grace through faith. I hope you know that salvation is by grace through faith. There's no works that we can do. There's not enough that we can do to make ourselves right for that day. We know that our only hope is that Jesus died for our sins on that day. So why will we be judged by our works? Let me first of all say why we won't be judged for our works. This is not a judgment of sin. We referenced these verses earlier. What I mean by that is the, the verses that say he blotted them out, he removed them as far as the east is from the west, and many other verses we can turn to, that's not referring to simply in this life and somehow they'll come roaring back to us on judgment day. And all of a sudden, Jesus will say, well, I, I see that. And some who have lived lives of sin before coming to Jesus might read this and think, oh, man. No, Jesus died for your past, present, and future sins. They were all completely atoned for through his death on the cross. This is also not a judgment on determining salvation. And I, you might think of what I say next, I'm contradicting that. But again, this is not, we don't believe that that if you just do enough, you'll be alright on that day. If your good works outweigh your bad, that's not what this is referring to. So what is this referring to? And here's why you might say, well, aren't you contradicting yourself? Here's the first reason we'll be judged by what we have done. And that is because what we have done is an evidence, a proof that we have been saved. We cannot be saved by our works. But the Bible is clear over and over again. If we are saved, there will be works that follow. Ephesians 2, we know this. I I paraphrased it over and over again. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But then he goes on to say, you're not saved by your works, but you are saved for works. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus Four good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk into them. Jesus says multiple times in the Gospels, you will show that you are my disciples by your works. Often he refers to us as trees and he says people will look at you and he will, they will know that you are a tree of orchard by the fruit that you are producing in your life. If we are a follower of Jesus, then we will produce fruit of obedience and commitment to him, not perfectly. But it should be there. There should be evidence in our lives. 
And our fruit will be brought out on that last day as public evidence that we are indeed a follower of Jesus. You've heard it asked before, if, if you were brought into a court and the, the crime was that you were convicted of being a Christian, the question is, would there be any evidence to prove your guilt? If someone brought you into court and said, this man is a Christian, would the judge be able to look at you and see evidence in your life that you are indeed a Christian? The Bible tells us is that one day that will be a reality. One day you will stand before the judge and... Evidence will be brought out and produced, showing the grace of God in your life. Again, you cannot be saved by your works. Nothing you will do will overcome your sin. Nothing you will do will cancel out the debt you owe. Completely grace. But it is transforming grace. It is life-changing grace. It is a new birth, a new life. It's the first reason we're judged by what we are done, have done on the judgment day. The second reason is this. And that is for reasons for rewards. You've heard Bema Seat talked about before. This is often what we're referring to. Or they're referring to rewards. And that might strange, sound strange to you. You think, well, isn't heaven itself a reward? And it is, but throughout the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings and in Jesus' teachings, we hear that there will be different degrees of rewards in heaven. We also hear there will be different degrees of punishment in hell. Jesus says that it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah in eternity than it will be for those who lived during his ministry and did not believe him. It will be better in eternity. There's different degrees of punishment and there's different degrees of reward in heaven. Think about the parable of the talents in Luke 19 where Jesus says a master went away and he left his money behind in charge of different servants. And when he came back, he rewarded each one differently based off of how they handled what they had been entrusted with. This, Jesus says, is how it will be in the kingdom of heaven. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, He who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his own labor. When we stand before judgment, it's not just going to be a whitewash that all Christians look the same. But we will have evidence in our lives of what we did to serve Jesus and to glorify God in this world. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse, verse 8, whatever good each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord. And in Revelation, the last page, the last chapter of the Bible, Jesus says, behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. To render to every man according to what he has done. I'm coming to reward you based off of what you have done, Jesus says. Again, I'm going to say this again and again. No one will get into heaven based off of works. But we will be rewarded in heaven because of them. And it's this idea in particular that I think is the motivation for Paul. Not simply for the reward, but because he wants to please the one who is giving him reward. The other day I was in my boy's room putting some things away and I looked on uh, George's shelf and he had some baseballs, some game balls um, from his years in Little League. And I thought, you know, there's nothing special about that ball itself. They were dirty, they were scuffed up. But on each of those baseballs was a reminder of their significance with the names of the players signing them and the, the event that took place that he earned them for. And for the greatest... And for us, the greatest joy on that day will not be the reward itself. 
Whatever that might be. But it will be receiving that reward from our Savior Jesus. To hear Him say, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward. And the thought of hearing that one day should motivate us to live our lives pleasing Him in anticipation of that day. Another passage is, that talks about rewards and is 1 Corinthians 3. You can turn there and just remember this to look at it later. 1 Corinthians 3, Paul describes the, these evil and good or the good and evil things we have done in, in 2 Corinthians. He describes them as gold, silver, and precious is good. And the evil or the bad or the straw, hay, and wood. He says, Jesus has laid the foundation, but on top of that foundation, we build our lives with gold, silver, and metal, or straw, hay, and wood. And he says that on that day, all of our works will pass through fire. Now, it doesn't take a genius to know what's going to happen with your life. It's built on the material of wood, straw, and hay, and it passes through fire. It's going to burn up. You're not going to be left with anything behind. And Jesus said, and Paul says that's how many Christians will be on the day of judgment. They'll make it into heaven and it will be glorious. There will be no disappointment in heaven. But all that they worked for on earth will be burned up. He ends that by saying, If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. He will make it, he will get into heaven, but only as through fire. That's quite an image to think about. There's another image of an entrance into heaven. And it's found in 2 Peter chapter 1. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, Peter describes someone who has spent his life building with those costly goods, those gold and silver and precious metals. And he says they added to their faith virtues like godliness and self-control and steadfastness. And you can read the list, it goes on and on. But at the end of that list, he says, when they get into heaven, there will be richly provided for them an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I read what some commentators said about this passage. And many think he's pointing to a scene that would have been familiar to his hearers. And a scene that would have been familiar to the citizens of Corinth. Because it's the scene of a famous Olympian returning home to the city in triumph. And what they would do for this returning athlete is they would have a huge celebration. In fact, the whole city would come out and they would actually tear down a section of the wall. So the procession could be led into the city in such grand fashion. You see the contrast in these two entrances into heaven. One saved but as through fire. One welcomed with a grand celebration. Paul's admonishment, and again, don't hear me say heaven is disappointing. Hopefully you understand what the point of those two contrasts are. But Paul's admonishment in 2 Corinthians is aim for the latter one. Build on the foundation of Jesus Christ a life of costly metal and precious stones. That doesn't mean we all have to be Billy Graham. If you look at 1 Corinthians 3, it says we are judged on our work. Not on our success, not on the outcome, but we're judged on our work. That means if you spend your whole life doing a, a, a job that the world overlooks, but you do it under the glory of God. That is precious metal. If you, if you care, if you spend your time caring for an elderly parent and do it for the glory of God. 
spend your life doing all these things that the world overlooks. God sees it. Because he's doing it. You're doing it for his glory. Build your life with costly metals and precious stones. Let the knowledge that you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ motivate you and excite you to invest your life in things that have eternal significance. I'll end with a... Sorry, I have one more why, don't I, on your paper. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? Paul surrounds this verse by telling us two ways that the coming day of judgment affect our lives. The first we've seen in verse 1... And that is, we make it our aim to please Him. We seek to live godly lives. I think I'll give you the, the, the fill in the blank in a little second. In a second. But the second he says in verse 11, he says, Therefore, because of this, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Second is evangelism. Knowing that judgment day is coming should motivate us to godly living and to evangelism. A few weeks ago, some were here on a Wednesday night, we cleaned the church. If you were here, you, you remember that that was the night that the remnants of Hurricane Ida were passing over, and, and we were experiencing tornado warnings. And as we were here working, it was kind of strange because all of our phones just kept going off, on and on. There would be a phone going off in this room, and a phone going off in this room. And I stopped and looked around, and the funny thing was, nobody was paying attention. In fact, I could have put a picture up here. Floyd's cleaning the baseboard and, and hiding. It's, it's under that table back there, cleaning the baseboard with his head under the blanket. We all kept working. We all kept wiping baseboards, cleaning windows, sweeping floors. We, we were fine. We, some of us kept an eye on the sky to make sure we weren't in danger. But as I come to the close of this message, let me admonish us. Let's not have that be the picture of our church as we hear the warning of the coming judgment of the Lord. To keep tidying up the church building. To keep focusing on ourselves and and ignoring the warning. Judgment is coming. Live godly lives. Persuade others. Maybe this morning you need to be persuaded. Perhaps this morning the Holy Spirit has persuaded you. You've heard God's word. You've been reminded that you are not ready for that day. That you are continuing in sin deliberately. And have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You've heard the message. You've been around the message. But you've never responded. Or or maybe you have, but you realize that much of your time has been spent in in investing in those things that are going to burn up in the last day. You don't live differently because of the coming day of judgment. But that day is coming. Soon you will be standing before the Bema seat of Christ. What will that day reveal? I'd like to invite the worship team to come forward. And we're going to close with a song. And as we do, I invite you to contemplate the day when you will stand before judgment. You know, in the last three weeks, I had three different people at three different times tell me, have you ever considered closing the service with a response? I said, no, but other people have, apparently. Or I have thought about that, but for different reasons we haven't. This morning we're going to close with a response, giving you an opportunity to respond. And and I don't know what category you are in, and I'll allow you to, to feel free to come up for either reason. But I would encourage you, if you are convicted this morning, don't leave here and just think, I'll take care of it later. Respond 
today. Be ready for that day. Again, maybe you've never made that commitment before, but maybe you have, but you're not living differently because of it. There's a few people I've asked to to be available to pray with you. And as we, we sing this song, just let me 